The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. At verses 17 through 22, it's page 55 in the Red Bible and page 107 in the Children's Bible. We've been walking through the book of Exodus this semester, and it starts with the people of God, Israel, in bondage in Egypt. They cry out to the Lord for deliverance, for salvation, for relief. And the Lord responds to their cry by sending his servant Moses, who goes to Pharaoh and demands the release of the people of God. Pharaoh, of course, ignores that demand. And the Lord comes with his strong arm and brings the plagues upon Egypt. And we said before the plagues, Israel was not allowed to leave Egypt. And after the plagues, Israel was not allowed to stay in Egypt. And so they are being forced out of Egypt back towards the promised land. In today's passage, we're going to look at the first details of Israel's journey out of Egypt back to the promised land of Canaan. And so we're going to read together Exodus chapter 13. We'll read verse 17 through 22. Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh led the, let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, God, pray that you would, that you would focus our hearts, Lord. We are often so distracted by things going on in our lives, things going around on in the pew in front of us or behind us, Lord. And so God, pray that you would draw our attention by your Holy Spirit to your word, that we might be nourished through your word, Lord God. And that we might see what a glorious leader we have in you. It might once again commit ourselves to follow you wherever you might lead us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college, I served one summer at a camp, and one of the expeditions that this camp went on was a spelunking expedition in which we went and we would go climb around in caves. And I thought, this sounds great. And so I went on this spelunking expedition, and we all got out of the van when we got there, and we put on our helmets, and we started into the cave. And I thought nothing much of it. I'd walked around in caves before. It wasn't a big deal. But as we traveled down into this cave... It started to get smaller and smaller and smaller. 
And as it got smaller, there were also more paths. And the, we had a leader out in front of us. There's probably 20 of us. And so we were playing follow the leader through this cave. And sometimes there were big paths that we weren't supposed to take. And we had to actually take these little paths in the side of the wall that we wouldn't have even seen if we didn't know that we were supposed to go there. And as we continued to travel on, again, it would get smaller and smaller and smaller. And there was even one point where we had to go underneath the water. There was a rock before us, and then there was water. And we had to go under the water and up over the other side to get to the other side of the rock. There was one point where it was so small that we had to keep our hands out in front of us, and we had to keep our heads tilted because the distance between the rock and the ground was about this high. And if you turned your head, your helmet would get stuck. And so we're crawling through there. And there was one very scary part where I actually got trapped between my chest and my shoulder blades for about five minutes. I was literally, for the first time in my life and figuratively, be stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so I'm sitting there and what's going through my mind is they're going to have to bring an IV down to me. I'm going to be stuck here for like 20 years until I shrink. And then finally I'll get out. But the leader that was right in front of me said, Dan, it's okay. There's a big cave right in front of you. You'll be able to stand up. Just breathe. It's okay. And then he said, try to scoot the dirt out from under your chest. And so I scooted the dirt out. And finally I was able to wiggle free as the 15 people behind me were very happy to see and was able to go and stand up in the cave. And we actually made it through out to the other side. Leadership is so important. Without the leadership of that person, I would have, I'd not be here today. (laughs) He knew where to go. He knew what to do. And it was so extremely valuable. Let me contrast that with another leader that I sat under. Last summer, I was on a softball team. One of you was a part of that team, and you'll get the joke. But this uh, coach was recruiting people wherever he could find them, on Craigslist, via email, wherever he could. And so, uh, so he calls me at, when I re- respond to one of his emails, and he says, listen, we are serious about softball. If you get MVP of a game, I'll give you $100. If our team wins the championship, I'll rent a party bus, and we'll go down to a Brewers game and come back. Well, I show up at the first practice, and there's about 20 guys there, and there's cuts on this team for rec league softball. And he is yelling at us and screaming at us and berating us. He's actually making us yell at each other, call each other names. He thinks this is motivation. Well, needless to say, by the end of the season, um, there was only two of us that remained that started with him. It was a completely new team, and there was only about two wins as well. (laughs) Leadership is so extremely important. It is the difference between the success and demise of a company, of a team, of a nation. And throughout scripture, we learn that God is our leader and he is a good leader. And so today, what I want to do is I want to tell you about your leader, God, and how good and wonderful he is and why he is a God worth following. Even when he takes you down a path, that you really do not want to go. And so let's look and see how God leads his people. First, we see this. The Lord leads his people on his path, not ours. Look with me in verse 17. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although, uh, although that was near. Now, 
let's pause here for a second. We are not exactly sure of the path of the exodus of the Israelites because the cities that are mentioned in scripture, we're not exactly sure where they are yet. We know that they went through the Red Sea, but we're not exactly sure the path of the exodus. But what's interesting is in this passage, we know what was not the path. If you look at this map up here, you'll see that uh, the Israelites were in the land of Goshen. That's where they lived. And they were exiting from Egypt and going up to Canaan in the top right-hand corner. And you might see, but there is a trade route that goes along the Mediterranean Sea. And that would have been the fastest way to get from Egypt to Canaan. It was about 150 miles. It probably would have taken a single person about 10 days. Maybe it would have taken them two weeks to, to four weeks to get to the land of Canaan. But if you know the story, you know it took far longer than four weeks, didn't it? And so God did not let them go the path of the Philistines up to the land of the Canaan. The question is why? Why did God not let them take the easy path, the short path? Why did God take them on the long path? Well, what we see is that God knew something about the hearts of the Israelites that the Israelites didn't know. Look with me in verse 17 again as it continues. It says, For God said, Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Verse 20. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. In verse 17, we read why God did not take Israel on the short path. God did not take Israel on the short path because God knew the weakness of Israel's faith. God knew that when they would come up against the Philistines, although they had just witnessed God bring the plagues upon Egypt and force them out of Egypt, that they would not have had the faith to believe that God could conquer the Philistines. And they would have returned to Egypt and they would have returned back into bondage and back into slavery. And so the Lord does not lead them on the short path. God knew that the longer path was the better path. You see, Israel's plan B was God's plan A. God knew that Israel needed to wander in the wilderness. This surface, as we see the idolatry in their hearts when they create the golden calf, this services when we see their lack of faith, when God calls them to take the promised land and they say, no, we're too afraid. This surfaces in their thanklessness as they constantly grumble against Moses, against God. You see, God had work to do in the Israelites and the short way was not going to cut it. The short way was not going to produce in the Israelites the things that God knew was most important. The shorter and easier path was not the best path. The longer path is not the path Israel would have chosen, but it was the best path because it was the Lord's path. You know, this is so applicable to our lives, isn't it? I mean, so easily applicable. We know that there are many times God does not take us on the short path or the easy path. Many times God will take your life on a path you do not want to go to produce in you a faith that you could never enjoy by your own doing. Proverbs 69 says, The heart of a man plants his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The Lord leads his people on his path. 
God's plan A is often our plan B or C or D or double Z. But it's God's plan A. And many times God's plan A is filled with bumps and bruises and trials and even suffering. At our first men's breakfast a few months ago, by the way, if you've never been to our men's breakfast, it's a great event. We're having one the first Saturday in May. I'd encourage you to come. But at our first men's breakfast, Jason Perkins uh, shared about the path that God had taken him on. Jason had a successful career, a great family, and yet his heart was far from God. And God foreordained suffering to come into Jason's life. It was not a path that he would have chosen. Jason developed this chronic back pain, and it wasn't just simply a sore back. It got so bad that Jason wasn't able to sit down. He either had to stand up or lay down. Matter of fact, he told me about a business trip where his dad had to drive him around in an SUV while he was laying on a stretcher in the back of the SUV. That's how bad it was. It was so bad that he wasn't able to pick up his own children. He wasn't able to pick up his own son until his son was over four years of age. That's how horrible this condition was. Certainly it was not his plan A. It would be none of our plan A's, would it? And yet it was God's plan A. You know, it's amazing to hear Jason testify at that men's breakfast that he needed that suffering. He needed it for God to produce something in him that he would have never got if life was easy, if everything went as planned. Jason said that through that suffering, he finally died to himself and gave control to God. That through the suffering, God had given Jason a greater love for God's word a greater joy and faith in God than he had ever known before. Now, he's better today by thanks of God and some of friends here in the congregation today. If you asked Jason if he wanted to go through it again, no way, not a chance. But he also wouldn't trade it for the world because he knew that that was God's path. And that was the path that he needed to go in order to produce something greater in him than health, than wealth, than worldly happiness. It produced in him a joy that he could have never mustered on his own. You know, my office is in a large business, and I saw a picture on one of the uh, offices this week. And this is a picture up here of it. This is our plan, right? We're like water, like electricity, right? We want the path of least resistance. Put me on a bike, show me the finish line, and send me, okay? But the rest of the sign goes like this. This is reality, all right? Or you could put this as your plan and God's plan, right? There is plenty of valleys, plenty of uh, mountains, plenty of obstacles to get to the finish line. And as we look at this, we think, why would God possibly detour our life? I mean, some of you here right now, you are swimming through the ocean. Some of you are going through the valley. Some of you are climbing the mountain. And you're wondering, how could this possibly be God's plan for my life? It's because God wants to produce something in you that is greater than comfort can produce. He wants to produce in you a joy and a dependency and a love for him that will delight your soul no matter how difficult the path is. And so how does the Lord lead his people? Well, the Lord leads us on his path, not on the one that we planned out. 
Secondly, the Lord leads his people according to his promises. Moses and Israel are forced out of Egypt, right? They have to bake with leaven because they're leaving in haste. And yet Moses stops to do something that seems very peculiar to us. It shows up in verse 19. It says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Now, in order to understand the significance of this verse that seems very random, we have to do a little bit of a backstory to understand what happens before this time. In Genesis chapter 15, over 500 years prior to the Exodus, the Lord makes a promise to the patriarch Abraham. And it's not only a promise to Abraham, but also to his descendants, to Isaac, to Jacob, all the way down to Moses. And that includes Joseph as well. And it goes like this, Genesis 15, you can follow along on the screen. Verse 13, it says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is exactly what happened in Egypt, right? This was not a surprise to God. This was all a part of God's divine plan. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, which he did through the 10 plagues and he will do through the Red Sea. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Excuse me, I skipped. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. If you remember, they plundered the Egyptians. Verse 15, as for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here, which means the promised land of Canaan. Now, as we fast forward to Abraham's great grandson, Joseph, who is the child of Jacob, also named Israel, we know that Joseph did not have an easy life. If you remember the story, Joseph did not have the path of least resistance. He had a path in life which he could not imagine or what he hoped for. Joseph was betrayed by his own brothers, sold into slavery taken to Egypt, sold to Potiphar. He was wrongfully accused of a crime he didn't commit and spent a long time in prison. And what strengthened Joseph to be faithful to God in the midst of his loneliness, throughout all the temptations and trials that faced him, was that he clinged to the promises of God. He clinged to the promise that God gave to his great-grandpa Abraham. And so as we look towards the end of Genesis, the end of Joseph's life, we read this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, probably mummified him, like you see with the other Egyptians and museums today. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And that's how the book of Genesis ends. And you look at this request from Joseph. Hey, when you guys leave Egypt, and it's surely going to happen because God promised, but when you leave Egypt, take my bones with you. Someone pointed out in community group this week that that seems kind of selfish. (laughs) 
like, hey, carry up my coffin with you. It seems like a tremendous burden. And so why was it so important for Joseph that his bones would be carried up to the promised land? Well, Hebrews 11 actually explains this for us. And it tells us that Joseph did this because the promised land of Canaan actually pointed to a greater promised land. In Hebrews 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that have not seen. And so he had a conviction that God was going to bring them back to the promised land just as he had promised, and yet Joseph could not see that promise. Hebrews eleven sixteen says, But as it is, they, talking about the Old Testament saints, including Joseph, desire a better country, a country better than Canaan, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, a heavenly city. And then finally, it gets to Joseph as it runs through all the saints. And it says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Hebrews 11 tells us that why Joseph was so adamant that his bones be taken back to the promised land of Canaan is because he was looking through the promised land of Canaan to the promised land of heaven, where he knew his inheritance lied, as did all the Old Testament saints listed out in Hebrews 11. And so Joseph, by faith, in the midst of suffering, clung to a future hope that God's promises were certain and that he would indeed deliver his eternal promised land that was yet to come. When Trish and I lived in our old house on Menlo Park, we would go on this thing that we called the five-mile bike ride. And we would start with the kids on this five-mile bike ride, and the kids would be so excited to go on this bike ride, we'd go through Bears Creek and make this big loop. Well, when we get to about mile one, the kids' legs stop working. Every, every hill turned into a mountain, and, and laughing would start to turn into crying, and you know how it goes. <laughs> And so in those moments when they would get tired, we would remind them of the oasis we would go to. We would always stop by A&W Root Beer. And we'd say, remember the promised land. Ice cream and root beer, it's coming. Keep going. And sure enough, that was incentive for them. And so they would pedal ah, ah, up the hills, down the hills, everything to get to the promised land of A&W. You know, that's not so different than what God does for us. When we get tired, when we get weary, he says, remember the promised land. You know, we were asking our kids to have faith in us, to believe that indeed there was an A&W, to believe that we had the resources to purchase them the good gifts. And we asked them to believe that we were not lying to them that this was actually going to happen. You know, as we read about Joseph's bones being carried out of the land of Egypt that earth, to the earthly promised land, we were reminded that God fulfills his promises always. And he even fulfills the promises that we cannot see yet. That he gives his promises to us to carry us, that we might cling to them in the midst of suffering in trials. 
And as we travel on the path that God has given to us, no matter how hilly or how bumpy or how hard it is, our motivation is that God has given us a promise and that we are by faith to cling to that promise, that this life is not all that there is, that we are foreigners on this earth, that this life is but a vapor, but eternity in heaven, where it is happy and holy all the time, awaits us. We are bound for an eternal heavenly promised land. If you are here today and you are struggling with the path that God has called you upon, cling to his promises, cling to the hope of the eternal promised land that he has given to us, that you might finish the journey strong. And so how does the Lord lead his people? Well, the Lord leads his people on his path, not ours. Secondly, the Lord leads his people according to his promises. And finally, the Lord leads his people with his presence. Look at verse 21 with me, if you would. It says, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This pillar of cloud and pillar of fire is what theologians call a theophany. A theophany is a manifestation of God and the Bible in a very tangible way that accesses the human senses. God is invisible. He doesn't have a body like us. Jesus does, but God, the Father, does not, neither does the Holy Spirit. And so throughout Scripture, God reveals himself in very tangible ways, such as a burning bush or a dove descending upon Jesus as the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at this passage and we see these pillars of cloud and fire, it is a visible reminder of an invisible reality. And verse 22 tells us that reality, that God never departs from his people. That God is always with his people, even in the midst of the wilderness. Though these pillars, through these pillars, as we'll see in the future, God protects his people. But here we see the express purpose of this, these pillars is to lead his people. Not only does, do, do the pillars show the direction that the people are to go, but it actually lights the path in the midst of darkness. You know, some of you are here today. And you are facing major life decisions. Should I move or should I not move? Should I get a job? Should I not get a job? Should I, whatever it might be, right? And you think, I wish I had a pillar of fire. Or I wish I had a pillar of cloud to lead me and guide me and tell me what I'm supposed to do, where I'm supposed to go. But the good news is that if you are a Christian, you have something greater than a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. As a matter of fact, you have at least two major advantages over these Israelites exiting from Egypt. The first is this. You have the Bible. They didn't have it. They had oral tradition of the stories that came before, but they didn't have the word of God. And so if you want to know the will of God for your life, read the Bible. It's as clear as day. It is the word of God. If you want to know, should I love my, day, my neighbor whose dogs bark all the time? All you have to do is look at the Bible. If you want to know, should I forgive that person that has hurt me again and again and again? Just look at the Bible. 
If you want to know, should I be honest on my taxes and report that little income that's not that significant? Just look at the Bible. You don't have to pray about it. The scripture tells us the will of the Father for us. And so we have the full Bible. But the other thing is that we have the Holy Spirit. You see, the pillar of fire that God used to guide the people in the wilderness and the spirit that resided in the Holy of Holies in the temple now resides inside of us. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon God's people. In the New Testament, the Holy Spirit resides in God's people. This means even when you feel like you are wandering in the wilderness, the Holy Spirit is not only with you, but the Holy Spirit is in you. You've all heard of a GPS, right? A global positioning system. It guides you from point A to point B when you're lost. And I know it's cheesy, but if you switch this acronym around to, instead of GPS, SPG, this is what we have. We have a spirit-possessed guidance system. The Holy Spirit is in us and guiding us and directing us how we might live. You know, a few weeks ago, a woman came in church and she asked me, she said, are you a born again, spirit filled church? And I said, absolutely. What do you mean by that? I knew we meant two completely different things because you see what the spirit does is the spirit produces an obedience and a, and a, and a direction for us that leads and guides us wherever we might go. Jesus talks about this in John 16, and he says something that is that just blew my mind this week. In John 16, Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, which is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. Also translated, lead one on their way into all truth. Now think about this for a second, okay? So Jesus is sitting with his disciples and he's saying, I'm going away because there is something better than sitting next to me. There's something better than walking with me. There's something better than hearing me preach to you. There's something better than, than seeing me face to face and touching me. There's something better than that. And you wonder what could be better than that? I mean, if Jesus was sitting right in front of you here at church, that'd be pretty cool, right? But Jesus says there is something even better than him sitting next to you. And that's Jesus being inside of you through his Holy Spirit. He resides in his people. Now, I know this might seem very abstract. And so let me concretely explain how the Holy Spirit guides his people. Even better than Jesus could if he was alive. I'm sorry, he is alive. Even better than if Jesus was sitting right next to you. Got to keep that straight. And this is, this is for me. This is how I see the Holy Spirit leading me. And I think he leads all of us in these ways. The first is this. The Holy Spirit makes me love the Bible. Before I was a Christian, I hated the Bible. Or I was at least indifferent to it. I thought it was the most boring thing in the world. And yet when the Holy Spirit came into my heart, it made the, the scriptures alive. It made me enjoy them in a whole new way, not just as a historical document, but as, as pure gold, as sweet honey for my soul. It's not that I always enjoy them like I should, or I can always understand them like I should, but the Holy Spirit did something to make me enjoy and understand the scriptures in a way that I never did before. 
Secondly, the Holy Spirit impassions my heart. When I was working at New Hope Church, which was a great place to work, the Lord put a burden on my heart and would not let it leave to plant a church in Green Bay. And he continued to impassion my heart for that through his Holy Spirit. Third, the Holy Spirit makes me nauseous. Now, I know this might seem strange, but before I was a Christian, I was a habitual liar. I lied to people all the time. I lied to my mom all the time, every day, sometimes for no reason at all, sometimes just so she wouldn't ask me more questions. And I thought nothing of it. I thought it was completely fine. But now when I want to lie to my wife or to my accountability partner, to my friend, or when I want to avoid conflict that I need to address, the Holy Spirit makes me sick to my stomach. I feel like I want to vomit. It's painful. But that's a gift of the Holy Spirit that we would not have if Christ was not raised from the dead. Finally, the Holy Spirit empowers my obedience, our obedience. In our third membership vow, Jacob's well, we say, do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? We recognize that any act of obedience that we have towards God can only be produced by the power of the Holy Spirit. That means that the Holy Spirit not only illumines to us what path we should take, but the Holy Spirit also empowers us to be obedient. There are many, many, many more examples I could share of how the Holy Spirit works in me and leads me and guides me and convicts me and changes me and frees me. We just don't have time. But the point is this. God still leads his people today. Not by a pillar of fire in front of you, but by the Holy Spirit inside of you, according to his word. Let me end with this. Coming up is graduation season. Some of you here are graduating, and it's fun to go to graduation parties because there's great food, there's great fellowship, and there's great fun, right? The three F's and and it's a time of optimism, right? The, the sky's the limit. And not only is there great optimism, but there's a little bit of fear because there's some uncertainty. And so a lot of times uh, people will write a little verse in the card that they give to them. And one of the most popular verses that, that people will write down is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, And you may be familiar with it, but it goes like this. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope in a future. I'm sure many of you have heard this verse. It's probably been a verse of great comfort to you, a verse that you've maybe shared with others. But next time you share that verse, share the verse before it too. <laughs> That's Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 29, 10 says this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon... I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. God is saying, yes, I have a plan for your life. Yes, the plan is to give you life. Yes, the plan is not to harm you, but to prosper you. But you know what? You're going to have to go through 70 years of exile before you get to that point. Because my plan is the best plan. And I can produce in you in Babylon something that I have not been able to produce in you here in Israel. 
And so God tells them that there is going to be this great journey, this great exodus that they're going to go through, in which they will be separated from their job, from their home, and from their community. And yet he is using all of it to prosper them, not to harm them, to give them a hope and a future. And as we look at this, we wonder how can God prosper people and give them hope and give them a future, even through tremendous suffering. And of course, the answer is all we have to do is look to Jesus. As Jesus approached his torturous death upon the cross, he cried out to God. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, literally the cup of God's wrath upon sin. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus said, if there is another path, Lord, take me down that other path so I don't have to endure your wrath. But God, I am trusting your path is the best path. And it was indeed the best path because it opened heaven for you and for me. And it was a better path because it was a path in which the Lord would accomplish all his promises. Second Corinthians one twenty says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through Christ that we utter our amen to glory to, to God for his glory. And the Lord leads his people with his presence. As we read earlier, Jesus leads his disciples that he might send the Holy Spirit for their benefit. S.I. McMillan, in his book, None of These Diseases, tells the story of a young woman who wanted to go to college. And on the application, it asks the question, are you a leader? Being both honest and a little bit dismayed, she wrote, no, and returned the application. To her surprise, she received this letter from the college. It said this, Dear applicant, a study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. In a culture that is always, always pushing us to be leaders, it is far more important that we are followers, isn't it? Instead of working hard to develop our leadership skills, what if we worked hard to develop our followership skills? How about we seek to develop those skills and let God lead us? Let's let God lead us, trusting he is leading us on the best path, because it is his path. Trusting his path is not a dead end, but it is according to his promises. Trusting that he not only leads us by his spirit, but empowers us by his spirit to walk the path that he has called us to. God is our leader. He is a perfect leader. Let us be followers of him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that sometimes you don't take us on the path we want to go. You don't take us on the easy path. That sometimes you take us on the long path, the difficult path. And we thank you for that because we know that you produce in us something. You produce in us a faith and a joy that wouldn't be possible by any other path. And so, God, we come to you today once again surrendering our life to you, Lord, trusting you for the path that you have called us to, God. Help us to be faithful 
and help us to know and to be assured that you are in control of all things and that you love us. Lord, as we turn to your supper, we are reminded of the path that our Savior went before us, a path filled with suffering. And so, God, as we take these elements, set them apart. May they nourish our souls. May they not just be bread and wine to us, but may they be your body, your blood, to nourish us through your Holy Spirit today, tomorrow, and until we come to this table again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.